Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Nicole Johnson Hoffman to the show. Nicole Johnson Hoffman is the CEO of Future Meat Technologies, bringing more than 25 years of experience across the agriculture, food manufacturing, food services, and meat production industries. Prior to joining Future Meat, Nicole was the Managing Director of Further Processed Foods for OSI Europe, based in Gersthofen, Germany. She led OSI's European Processed Food Divisions across Europe and served as Chief Sustainability Officer and Senior Vice President. Nicole, how are you doing today? Thanks, Arash. I'm really pleased to be with you today. Nicole, where are you currently located? I'm, I'm speaking to you today from Munich, Germany, which is where I live. I've lived here for a little over a year, and I'm in the process of moving back to the U.S. Um, to my home state of Minnesota. How long have you been in Munich? Uh, I've lived here for about um, a year and a half now, I think. I moved over in January of 2000, uh, I guess 2021. Um, and so it's been an interesting experience to spend half the pandemic uh, here in this country. Well, I'm guessing interesting might be an understatement considering everything going on in Europe right now. It is. It's, um, it, it helps me to understand the, um, the experiences of Europeans during World War II, to be honest, because, um, because the conflicts that are happening in, in Ukraine are, um, are quite close by. And, um, and we, we have Ukrainian people here in Munich every day. So we're, it's really interesting to uh, experience this, this close up. You know, and speaking of Ukraine and Munich and different cultures, I was doing some research and I came across a very interesting interview. I think that took place back in 2013 when you were the general manager of a beef processing plant for Cargill, I believe. And you were very eloquent regarding some of the ways that you and Cargill were working to working with different people from different cultures. Where does that come from? I have a really strong appreciation for diversity and um, for the value that comes from bringing diverse people together and, um, and from the wisdom of teams. And, um, and so that's something that Cargill fostered, of course, that was something that Cargill also believed in. And we worked really hard to make sure that uh, our places of work were places where everyone could contribute equally and where everyone could succeed. Um, this is something that I feel really strongly about. So I've, I'm, I've been fortunate to work in a lot of diverse environments in my career. So I know we might go off on several tangents here, but how do you think people are handling, you know, you mentioned the pandemic. What's a good way to foster culture and relationships now with, you know, remote work, for example? I think um, the moment that we're in today is one that requires quite a lot of grace for our fellow man. And... Um, Many of us are coming out of 
the last two years with a lot of um, a lot of trauma and a lot of concerns and um, and they're different for each person and they're coming out in strange ways in in our behavior um, in our in the changes in our beliefs and the changes in our values and we need to extend a lot of grace to each other as we all grapple with the changes in our lives and the changes in ourselves that have happened as a result of the pandemic. And when we do that, beautiful things can happen. We can learn from each other. We can have empathy for people whose experiences were really different than our own um, or who came through, went through similar experiences and came out um, with different ideas than we came out with. Um, but, but only through um, really attempting to understand each other and empathize with each other can we learn those lessons um, and can we find the beauty in, um, in what we've been through collectively. You know, I love the idea of grace for our fellow man and learning to learn about each other. One of the questions I have here in my notes is specifically when it comes back to your time with Cargill and this topic came up quite a bit during the pandemic. And so I now have the opportunity to ask, what what does the general public not know about beef processing plants that perhaps you can share with us? I think people don't understand um, the the, uh, the motivations of the people who are working in beef processing plants and in the people who are operating those those plants. Um, I think there are a lot of incorrect assumptions about what people who work in animal agriculture and in beef production um, and meat production in general. Uh, believe and care about. Um, it's important for people to know that the the folks who are working in those facilities are, for the most part, passionately engaged in the work they're doing. They care very much about the contribution they're making to society. Um, they do that work because they believe it is important, and um, and they do it with care and um, and um, and empathy for. The animals and for um, for the impact on society. Um, that being said, there are of course a lot of issues associated with that industry, and um, and we're all we're all engaged in different ways in working through those issues. Um, but I think people misunderstand uh, what's going on in the hearts and minds of people who work in animal agriculture. I really appreciate you shedding some light on that, and we're going to make what might seem like a one eighty, but it's not a total one eighty, but. You're now with Future Meat. Can you give the audience an overview of Future Meat and your role at the organization? Future Meat is a cultivated meat company. Uh, we've been in existence for about five years in one incarnation or another. Uh, we are in a mid-stage startup phase, which means that we have, um, we've got some amazing technical achievements already um, under our belt. Uh, we have some big challenges still ahead of us as we continue on our mission to bring cultivated meat to consumers around the world um, and to change the way food is produced for people around the world. Um, I joined the company in February of 2022, and so I've been with them now for about three months, and it has been a fantastic experience um, to join this organization of people who are so passionate about what they do, who believe in this mission, but who also have their feet firmly on the ground. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's thrilling and it's really cool. And um, I feel honored to be part of it. Now, how does Future Meat differ from, let's say, 
the Beyond Meats and the Impossible Burgers of the world, or the Impossible Meats of the world? Future Meat is a cultivated meat company. Our mission is to grow real meat, um, to grow meat cells uh, without animals. So we are not producing um, meat substitutes. We are actually producing meat. Uh, we're producing meat in, um, in large fermentation tanks. Uh, which is where we, we produce the cells where they grow. And then we combine those cells with plant proteins or other structure um, to give the product, the finished product, the taste and the, um, the structure and the texture uh, that people are looking for in meat. Um, but that's our differentiator. When you cook future meat uh, chicken, for example, it smells like chicken. It tastes like chicken. Um, when you eat it, you've, you, know, you feel like you've eaten chicken <laughs> and you have that satiation that comes from, uh, from eating meat. So your business model is also different, I believe. You're not a DTC company, a direct-to-consumer company, are you? We will be producing food for consumers. So we will be going um, to consumers with our products. We will likely first launch through food service because that's a, a great way for us to bring products to people more quickly. And then eventually will be available at retail. And your journey from being in the traditional beef industry to now future meat, lab-grown meat, cell-grown meat, what's some of the, I know you've only been there four months, but what's some of the aha moments you've had? I, I think of food production as, um, as a sort of a fluid system. Uh, we're not any of us going to lift ourselves out of the food system. What we can do is play a role in improving the food system. And um, cultivated meat is a way to improve the food system. It's to take foods that are already existing um, and to, to turn them into food that we can feed to the cells, grow the cells directly, and then, um, and then bring cells to consumers. So when you start to see the food system as a system that you need to work in and also work on at the same time, that's when you, that's when you begin to have kind of that magical moment where it all begins to make sense. So it sounds like you've taken a holistic view of the food system and not siloed or segregated it. For me, it's important to remember that every decision you make um, in bringing food to people has consequences. Um, and the important thing is to try to anticipate as many of those consequences of your decisions as possible and, um, and to make them intentionally. Of course, you'll always be surprised. Um, one of the things that I've learned as I've worked with the sustainability space is that there will always be impacts that you haven't thought of in your supply chains, in your products, um, to communities. And you have to be open to learning continuously about what your impacts are and then addressing them as they come up. But it's only when you really embrace the idea that you're part of a system and that you can't replace the system and you can't really break the system um, that you can really make real change. Now, there's been some concern regarding the other brands that I've mentioned. People have questions around genetically modified plants and meat. How do you alleviate some of those questions or concerns? I think, yeah, everyone has different needs. Um, I think ultimately people should be given the opportunity to make choices uh, that align to their values, that align to their particular health concerns, um, and that align to their lifestyle and their budget. And our job is to bring these options to people around the world and allow people to make the choices that make sense for them. 
Some people um, certainly have concerns about uh, GMO foods, and it's important that for those people, they have an opportunity to choose foods um, that meet that meet their needs. Um, our, our products will be and are GMO free. Um, so we are not a GMO product. Um, and um, we're happy about that because we believe that that will meet the needs of a lot of consumers around the world. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to understand that people need to be able to make their own choices. Um, we don't want to be um, colonialist in, in the foods that we produce and, um, and bring to consumers around the world. We want to allow people to make their own choices. Now, what's the price point for your finished product? I understand back in 2015, 16, there was a big to-do about, you know, the first burgers that were created being $250,000. But how does your price point compare to traditional meat? It varies depending on the protein. Uh, today, our chicken is around on par with the same price for um, conventionally raised chicken. And that's through accomplishments in um, the media, which is the, the, the food that we give to the cells, um, the, and also efficiencies that we've been able to achieve in our pilot factory in Israel um, and other cost, uh, cost reductions that we've been able to achieve. And we're not there yet with some of the other proteins, of course. These are, these are continuous improvement projects. So we're constantly working to bring down the price to make sure that what we bring to consumers is not just um, food for the few, but is a, is a real choice that can be available to everyone. Now, you mentioned the plant in Israel. What are the plans to bring plants to the U.S.? We're in the process of selecting a site for our first factory in the U.S. Um, we expect that we will be able to break ground on that at the end of 2022 or 20, beginning of 2023. Um, so we're really excited about that opportunity. That's going to be our first large-scale facility. So the factory that we have in Israel is a pilot plant. Um, it's a place where we're producing the cells and we're producing the finished product, which is great for us in terms of R&D and innovation. And then we'll be scaling that up uh, for the factory in the U.S. And you said production by the end of 2023, is that correct, or breaking ground? Uh, breaking ground by the end of 2022, 20, the beginning of 2023. And we hope to be able to, um, to cut the ribbon on the factory and commission the factory uh, within about 12 months of that. So 2024, is that correct-ish? Around there, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, with the supply chain disruptions that are going on in the world today, um, every prediction that we make is, is probably um, a little off at the time we make it and a lot off five minutes later, but that's the current thinking. I've heard a lot about that, and I'm assuming that even with the current price of beef and chicken, your product might eventually be even more competitive. We believe that cultivated meat is a great solution to the fragile supply chains that, um, that we've developed over time in a lot of our food products. Cultivated meat can be produced right next to the populations that need it. Um, these, these factories are small. Uh, they, are, um, they have a pretty easy footprint. You can fit them into almost anywhere. They basically are like a brewery. Um, so there's, there's, no, um, there's no negative outcomes for the community. And, um, and they also produce great jobs. So, you know, the jobs in these factories will range from hourly workers at an entry level to, you know, PhD scientists. So these are, these are great jobs for communities and um, great ways to produce food close to home. Now, I was reading an article in 
TechCrunch. It's the one that came out last year, I believe in October, or sorry, 2019 October. And it says here, the company wants to be a supplier of the hardware and cell lines that anyone would need to become a manufacturer of lab-grown meat. Is that business model still in play? That business model has been adjusted to include bringing finished product to consumers directly. So, um, so we will be focusing on bringing food to people um, as opposed to being an ingredient supplier. I'm not saying that we would never be an ingredient supplier, but at the moment, that's not our current business plan. I was wondering if there's a franchise opportunity for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. We talk a lot about distributive manufacturing and, um, and making this process easy enough to do that you could own a franchise of Future Meat in your town um, in the same way that you might own a quick service food restaurant. I was actually thinking along the lines of, so I've interviewed several vertical farm companies and they have a at least one 80 acres farms, I believe, Mike Zelkin out of Pennsylvania. Part of his business model is co-locating next to, let's say for this example, a Kroger where the plants are grown fresh and then you've cut out logistics. So you've lowered the, you've lowered the carbon footprint and you can continuously supply year round. And when I was reading the article, I was imagining a future meat location close to a quick service restaurant, a grocery store, and being able to provide you know, fresh beef on a regular basis. We like that idea very much. We, we like the idea of being um, like your local brew pub where you go in and you, you know, you might have a drink and then you bring home a growler. Um, I think that's a pretty cool idea. I think that's a way that people would like to be able to buy meat. Um, and I think it's a, it's a vision for the future that's pretty optimistic. Um, so that's, that's one of the concepts that we're working on. So how big is the footprint needed for one of your facilities? Just ballpark. They're not particularly large facilities, actually. Um, the I think that you could fit one into something that would be the size of a small warehouse. To be honest, they're not um, they're not terribly large and they're not terribly complicated um, to build the factory itself. It's the equipment that's the interesting bit. Um, these fermentation tanks are um, are really complex machines and require a lot of specialized knowledge to operate. I appreciate you sharing that. So, like we've said, you've been with the company four months. I'm sure it's been like drinking, as they say, water from a fire hose or fire hydrant. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself in this short time? I really enjoy working in the fast pace of a mid-stage startup. Um, this team is working in fast motion, and that's normal for them. Uh, it, we're working in the Israeli startup culture, which, as you might as you might already know, is a unique and special um, culture where people are extremely nimble and agile. They're innovative. Um, they're they're constantly coming up with new solutions to problems, and they never let an obstacle stop them. So I'm learning about myself that I really appreciate that culture, and I'm proud to be part of it. You know, one of the things you said in your 2013 interview that stood out to me, I think to paraphrase, you said when you're on the plant floor at the beef processing plants, people ask you if you're an engineer and you reply that you're not formally an engineer, you're an attorney, but you're a people engineer. Tell me more about that. I think that um, 
it, you know, in large scale manufacturing and that, that particular factory that I was running at the time had 2,500 employees, I believe, uh, you really are moving people every day, uh, moving people emotionally, moving them intellectually and moving them physically. And you need to be um, able to understand what drives people, what they need to understand, what they don't understand, um, you know, where they are physically in the moment um, and get them in the right places doing the right things. Um, that's large scale manufacturing. But small scale manufacturing like we're doing here is an interesting experience. The people involved in our business are um, many of them PhD scientists, for example. And, um, and what drives them is innovation and, um, and scientific discovery and creating an opportunity or a place where they have the ability to be creative, um, where they have the ability to fully express their abilities and, um, and their passions. That's, um, that's what we're engineering at Future Me. So if someone would have told you, let's say 10 years ago, when you're knee deep in the beef industry, that one day you'd be the CEO of a lab grown cell-based meat company, what would you have said? I was a skeptic of cultivated meat for years. Um, people would talk about cultivated meat and I thought it was something that was a, a good idea, um, something that was a, an interesting concept and something that I would never see in my lifetime. I was shocked to find out how much innovation has happened in the last five years. Um, and when I met first with um, the Future Meat founder, uh, Kobe Nachmias, um, and learned what the team had achieved and how far along on this journey they were, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, he came to my apartment in Munich and cooked uh, Future Meat chicken and Future Meat lamb for me in my apartment. And, um, and I was astounded. So, um, so I certainly would never have guessed that I'd be involved in this business but I will tell you that my motivations have never changed. You know, what I care about is doing work that matters um, with people that I respect and like. And um, this gives me an opportunity to do both of those things um, in a way that's really satisfying. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite privileged to be part of it. Now, one of the challenges I've read with cultured meats is the regulatory authorities. How has future meat being able to handle that? I guess here in the U.S. it would be the FDA. Is that correct? Uh, the FDA will regulate a part, a portion of the process and the USDA will regulate another portion of the process. So the two agencies are working together to come up with a regulatory framework to bring these products to consumers in a way that everyone can be assured um, meets all of the, uh, the highest standards for safety. Um, it's actually been a, a really good partnership with FDA and USDA. Um, they are working really hard to make sure that when consumers have the opportunity to, um, to try cultivated meat, they will be able to do it with total confidence um, that all of the um, food safety and quality assurances are in place. So this is novel food and um, we don't need to rush this. We can we can wait until the regulators have had their questions answered and and feel confident in their decisions. And where are you in that process? We are in ongoing discussions with regulators in the U.S. Um, and in a couple other countries. Um, and we've had really productive conversations. So they ask great questions. We've been able to give them 
um, really strong answers. And then there are times when they come back and say, okay, now we need more detail about this particular issue. Um, you know, please tell us the results of whatever tests you ran or, um, or whatever documentation you have. And um, it's been a good iterative process. Now, I read a headline that says, most of the meat we eat in 2040 will not come from animals. What are your thoughts about that? I think that the events of the last two years have taught me that assumptions I have made about the future um, were uh, based on faulty um, grounds. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of us uh, assumed that we would go on as we had begun. And clearly, that's not the case. Clearly, um, there are a number of factors uh, that can completely change our lives and, um, and drastically in a really short period of time. Uh, we're seeing not just the pandemic, but we're seeing additional surprising global events um, that are changing all of our lives right now. So I think it is entirely possible um, that by 2040, the um, the meat that we eat will be will need to come from additional sources. Well, I know we're talking about 2040, but let's fast forward to 2030. Let's say Fast Company, Forbes, the Wall Street Journal were to write a headline or perhaps even a short paragraph regarding future meat. What would you like that headline or paragraph to read? I would like the story to be about the way future meat was able to bring cultivated meat to consumers at a price that matched their, um, their family budgets and allowed them to use cultivated meat in exactly the same way that they use conventionally grown meat and enjoy it in their favorite recipes. Um, for me, it's not real until it's real in the home. And um, I want to be able to say in a really short period of time that we have made this real in people's homes. You know, I'm looking forward to trying your product. I've tried the other products on the market. I'm a vegetarian myself, but I used to eat meat at one time. And I can tell you personally, again, experience of one, that the other products that are out there haven't quite hit the spot for me. We think that there is something in our brains as humans um, that is triggered by real meat. And we believe that it is hard for people who don't want to eat real meat for one reason or another, um, conventionally grown meat. Um, it's hard for them to trip that trigger. Um, and so some people like yourselves learn to just turn that trigger off and ignore it. Um, and other people keep trying to trip that trigger with uh, substitute foods. But we believe that cultivated meat will, will meet both of those needs. People will not need to be um, concerned about some of the ethical issues or the other reasons that they may choose not to eat conventionally grown meat. And they will be able to trip those triggers and, um, and enjoy a great piece of chicken that I think the next day they'll be thinking about and craving again. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, this may sound like a strange segue, but I was doing some research on your website and I love the video on there. And that cowboy is one line about you can't put a cowbell on a soybean. It's just a beautiful line. <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. I mean, uh, you know, I, uh, I think um, there's a lot of heritage and a lot of, um, a lot of tradition associated with our food uh, and, with, and with meat production and, and meat consumption. 
And um, what we're trying to do in cultivated meat is take the very best of meat and bring that to consumers without any of those sacrifices or compromises that people maybe don't feel good about. Well, I appreciate that. Now, last question, and this could be professional or personal, and with your career arc, again, I love seeing how an attorney working for the beef industry, I think you've been around agriculture and meat, if my math does me right, about 23, 24 years. But if you can give some advice or words of wisdom, recommendations, professional or personal for the audience, what would it be? I like to um, remind people of that saying that the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Um, this is one of my favorite ideas, uh, that the future is out there. We all think that, that um, in order to be innovators, we have to you know, sit in our bed and, and come up with something that no one's ever thought of before. But I don't think that's really true. I think we need to find the future. Um, it's here. It's lurking. It's in universities. It's in um, fac factories. It's in a student's classroom. It's in, um, it's in the ideas and minds of our young people. We need to find the future where it already exists, and then we need to bring all of our powers to bear to make it real. Um, so I'm a, a you know, I, I am not a scientist. I'm not uh, Kobe Nachmias, uh, but I, what I am is a person who can make ideas real and who can make things happen. And I, I bring that gift um, to, to this work, and um, I feel like that's my contribution. So I know I said last question, but since you said find the future, I'm going to ask you specifically, tactically, how does one go about finding the future? What are some tips? I have worked with people in my career who always seemed to be aware, who were, who were learners and readers and, um, and never stopped um, inquiring. And that's how you find it. You listen carefully to our young people. You listen carefully to our elderly. Um, you read everything that you can get your hands on. And, um, and you find that these breakthrough ideas are lurking out there. Um, and um, I, I find that actually, if you are still unquiet, um, these ideas come to you. So I, I, try to, I try to find opportunities to be still and quiet and listen carefully. Nicole, I think sit and listen is a great place to end. I really appreciate your time today and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks very much, Raj. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.